Hey everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode we're going back to 1965, picking four films. I'm with Jacob. How's it going? Hey everybody, it's just dandy out here. It's just the first day of October. It's it's awfully <laughs> warm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I was sweating it. Um, how hot is it out there? Oh, it's only like, what, 76? Okay. Not bad. Yeah, it was around 78, I think, today here. But that's weird for Indiana. Um, it's normal for Napa. The... Um, <laughs> So of the four films, have you, which ones have you seen before, or are they all new to you? Okay, the only one that was new, well, two of them were new to me: uh, Robin in the Four Hoods and My Good Neighbor Sam. Okay. Um, course, my dad being a Western fan, yeah, no, Fistful of Dollars was something I'd seen quite a bit. Yeah, and uh, Doctor Strangelove was new to me. You're the one that told me, like, yeah, it's pretty good. You should care, uh, grab it. It's one of those. There's a weird fad. Um, in the 60s and early 70s where these serious dramatic actors started tackling wacky comedies. And it's all because of the movie we discussed in our last episode, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, because Stanley Kramer was known for very highbrow, very artistic, um, challenging movies that usually won awards, and he just does a Mad, 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 Mad World, and it makes a fuck ton of cash. And I brought up the fact that while I, I enjoy the spectacle, I don't particularly find it all that funny. There's only two or three scenes that work for me, um, which is little for a three-hour movie. Now, here's the thing about Dr. Strangelove. I appreciate it. I understand. Like Now, reflecting upon it, I get it. But when I was watching it, for some reason, I had in my head Peter Sellers, wacky comedy, legendary. I thought it was going to be a lot sillier than it was. It's very dry. Most definitely. And to think for that, uh, for General Ripper, you know, the, the antagonist of the film, yeah, to absolutely just go crazy and make the first attack against Russia all because of a stupid conspiracy theory about fluoride in the water. Yeah, it's it played by <laughs> uh, Sterling Hayden plays uh, the general, and he is um, notorious like for film noir and westerns and stuff like that, really dead serious movies. So he sells it. And the funny thing is almost everybody in this is known for their serious acting. So it's kind of bizarre seeing this. How do I explain? Because someone gave me shit for not finding it funny. And I'm not saying it's a bad movie. It's just for some reason in my head, I expected a different kind of comedy. And it wasn't until I got to the last 20 minutes I started to line up with it. And I feel like I need to go back and watch it again. But it's still, it's it's a very, very dry black comedy. Oh, no, absolutely, hands down. Oh, God, George C. Scott in particular. Uh, of course, like being the main advisory for, you know, counteracting the nuclear strike. Oh, geez, like how is that, you know, typical all-American, you know, Catholic guy pretty much hates anything outside what he serves. I mean, hell, even with the Russian ambassador, he was calling um, Gorbachev a freaking atheist. freaking <laughs> call me and this and that, but it's like, okay, it's like, uh, whatever, it's like, atheist is like, is it really that bad? <laughs> it's so weird. All the insults he had to hurl around. Yeah, it's... His perf- his performance is very interesting because a lot of it's facial features. He's really frustrated. He's really confused. He he, he just trying to rationalize what the fuck is happening. That's that yeah. I found amusing. I just didn't find it laugh out loud funny. And here's the thing: is um, I love Peter Sellers in particular roles. Of course, Doctor Cl- uh, Professor Clouseau being the big one. But um, sometimes, like Will Ferrell or you know Johnny Depp, guys who are known for very particular kind of acting. 
you need to steer them in the right direction. And I don't like his uh, Doctor Strangelove character. I think it's fucking bizarre. I think it's irritating. I do not find it funny. All that weird mechanism shit with his hand. What the <laughs> fuck is that? Um, is is the character in... Now, I've never seen the original Frankenstein, so I'm probably just wrong here. But Young Frankenstein, do you remember the guy with the mechanical hand that keeps moving around like crazy? Is that a spoof of Dr. Strangelove and not Frankenstein? Okay, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it was a nod to Dr. Strangelove. Okay, because it's... If that's the case. Yeah, it's just so unusual. But he does the same kind of character... Um, the next year in, uh, What's New Pussycat, he plays, like, this German psychologist or whatever, and he's just, he's not funny. It's just irritating. Um, but the, oh, my God. <laughs> but that's just me. Oh, no, and then, of course, you have the, um, plane sequences, too, as they're going to drive into Russia and, you know, you know, pretty much bomb those targets. You have, uh, he's from Blazing Saddles as well. Oh, uh, Slim Pickens. Yeah, that's what it is, Slim Pickens. God, that should be such an easy name to remember. But, uh, yeah, no, Slim Pickens, just like, you know, their little announcements going over all the plans and details of this said situation. Uh, just the way he, like, again, just using that particular uh, accent of his, it, it just makes the dialogue all the more funny. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Well, and I was a little disappointed because his is a little more serious and grounded for most of his performance. And I'm just used to seeing him really wacky and wild. Um, oh no, absolutely! Oh god, up until that very end, race where the bomb, where the bombed bay doors open <laughs> while he's trying to fix some stuff. Um, I it's, it's, I'm looking at this here, and it says Columbia Pictures agreed to finance the film if Peter Sellers played at least four major roles, which is a really fucking strange thing to ask. Like that's very particular. Yeah, no, I mean, what, he plays the president of the United States, he plays, uh, oh god, the British major, I forget his name. Right, yeah, the Mandrake, uh, his was my favorite of the, of the three, because the president's too dry and the strange love is too fucking bizarre. Um, <laughs> trying to think who else is in this, um, oh yeah, and we get the debut of, uh, James Earl Jones as one of the co-pilots. Yeah, that's right, he was one of the operators, yes. Yeah, but I just, I just uh. don't think that Kubrick and comedy go together i just i feel like this could have been a completely different movie but i'm yes i know it's sacrilege but guess what i'm the one that pisses in the pool i'm sorry <laughs> yeah yeah no say what you will i mean you know all directors are open to criticism yeah i don't know uh, I, I, maybe maybe i need to come back to this later like i said and revisit it and maybe see it from a different perspective now that i'm not expecting a wacky comedy right but i mean as far as it goes for the character dr strangelove himself i'm like i don't know i'm here for the bizarre and the weird and the goofy his alien <laughs> hand syndrome oh uh, yeah that too or no or basically like his uh repopulation strategy 10 females to each male <laughs> <laughs> well theoretically that would work <laughs> oh god yeah no, that's fucking nuts uh, uh what hmm. is it uh what is our second film uh, second film, uh, Fistful of Dollars, a Clint Eastwood classic based off of uh, an old Japanese film named Yojimbo. Yeah, and we had discussed a different version of it not that long ago, I think like three or four months ago, called, um, oh shit, I just forgot, A Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Yes, um, and, that's and the, what it was. And those two films are very similar. Here's the thing is, Fistful of Dollars hit like a fucking freight train when it finally got released. It was released in Italy in 64 where it was a sensation but it didn't come out till 66 in America and 
it was literally like, okay, so fistful of dollars, then six months later we got a few dollars more, and then six months later we got uh, uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. So there was really close in America. So he became a sensation in 66, not when these movies came out. And so that's why you kind of see, like, he's only doing these three movies until, I think, 68, he gets Coogan's Bluff, I think it's 68 or something like that, and then Eagles, where Eagles Dare. And um, it literally changed everything. And I'm not just talking Clint Eastwood's career. I'm not talking about just Spaghetti Westerns. I'm talking about the Western period because 66 is kind of, uh, you're on the verge of collapse for the studios. Um, they're spending too much money. They're not bringing enough in. They're battling with TV. And all of a sudden, out of fucking nowhere, these independent movies are making tons of money. No, it didn't make uh, like Easy Rider kind of money, you know, where that was like the $300,000 movie that made, uh, I think, $30 million. And then all of a sudden, everybody said, hey, we got to try more serious stuff. But, you know, $6 million for the first movie is nothing to scoff at, especially when I bet you MGM acquired it for like 100000 or something. And right. And um, all the studios kind of dabbled in Spaghetti Westerns, but UA and MGM or whatever, they dabbled the most. They, uh, I would say 75% of the Spaghetti Westerns that were released on, you know, a wider, instead of just grindhouses, were all from that company. And it's all because they made so much bank with this trilogy. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, you can see the appeal of it, too. And, I mean, in particularly, you know, Clint Eastwood, like he ended up just like bringing in the audience. Yeah, I mean, he ha- he was just a TV actor at the time. I think he only got like twenty five thousand dollars for the first movie. He, I mean, he Rawhide had basically dried up for him, and he was like, "Well, what do I do now?" And you know, he never uh, his career didn't take off when he was a Universal player. He was always just doing like cameos and short bits. Um, after this, he's I don't think he's ever done a supporting role. I think from this point, he is always the star. He's always a, a number one on the list. Yeah, no. If, like, if he's not behind the camera, he's always in front of it. And is he the longest career as an A-lister? I mean, you're talking 64 to now. I mean, he's, He has one movie left in him, which he's just going to direct. And I still count that. If your name as a director sells the film then it's still, you know, you're still the A-list. and Because people find out a film directed by Clint Eastwood, that gets people's attention. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. Maybe the most famous actor to become a director? I'm trying to think of anybody else that got bigger, and I can't. Yeah, no, I can't. it's hard for me to think I of mean, right now, I mean, maybe too. 30 years from now, Jordan Peele, but, you know, you were talking Spielberg's, I'm sorry, um... Eastwood's been at it since 71 so it's just it's really interesting plus all the westerns from this point on are basically turning into you you have like um still the fantasy kind of stuff you know there's the tv movies and there's the stuff like Dean Martin and and directed by Andrew McLaughlin his stuff is light and fluffy but then you had the darker grittier stuff And, and not just this but like Bonnie and Clyde which we'll discuss sometime down the road they're changing film. They're, it's getting bloodier. It's getting grittier. People are going yeah. back, and they're not basing it so much on legends. They're trying to find the real, the reality in these stories. So it's not beautiful and uh, massive score and huge cinematography. You know, it's like, well, what really happened here? Right. Yeah. It almost seemed like there was a hyperfixation, uh, a fixation on uh, hyper violence. Yeah. In cinema around that time. 
well, it's not just that though. Is that it wasn't you know the the John Wayne kind of western. Well, even John Wayne westerns changed because he did the Cowboys and the Shootist, where those were darker stories where he died and they were much bloodier. The um, there was a time when I was crazy about spaghetti westerns, and now as I get older, I kind of get nauseated by the the extreme violence and the nihilism. Um, yes. Sergio Leone, Sergio movies were difficult and and violent, but they they rode the line higher than just being like grim trash. Oh yeah, and then of course there's like the little goofy aspects to it, you know, like how the person could be shot from this range by that particular rifle. Yeah, and of course the little overdramatization of when they die. Yeah, well, and then you have different ways of filming it, too, because extreme close-ups and, and, and then the texture of the sets, they were muddy and gross, and the action sequences were flashier. He really changed the language, not just for Westerns, but I think a lot of action movies really started to take that, too. Oh, yeah, no, you can de- I mean, honestly, you can definitely see it, like, as more came out later on. Yeah, it's, it's funny, because, yeah, this and Dirty Harry are... Probably the two most pivotal movies of his career, but also, like, really pivotal for their genres. Oh, shoot. You know, honestly, thinking, looking back and uh, thinking about it, you definitely have a point there. Yeah, because I just, I just keep thinking, like, the cop movie barely existed by the time Dirty Harry came around. You had Bullet and French Connection, but that was about it. And then Westerns were completely different before this one. So... It, it, you may not like spaghetti westerns, but this is kind of a, a requirement. It's it's a familiar story and it was ripped off many times, um, but I think it's kind of pivotal to westerns. Like you just at least once just see this movie. Oh yeah, definitely. All I right. Mean, well, yeah, if you're familiar with this storyline, you know, bounty hunter playing both sides of these rival gangs in this town. You know, basically, you know, an opportunist looking out for himself till. Yeah, there's a there's a sword and sorcery version of this in 1984, I think, with David Carradine called the Warrior and the Sorceress. It's it's basically the same plot, but it's really trashy and it's but it's pretty entertaining, I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, when it came to sword and sorcery, it was it was honestly unless it was like Conan. Yeah, it was tough to get right. Yeah, it, it, there's very few movies that had the budget to get it. Yeah, <laughs> Sword Sorcery. Woosh. It's like getting a good <laughs> werewolf movie. It's pretty rare. Um, what is our next film? Okay, next film is Robin in the Seven Hoods. Taking... Starring, yeah, go ahead. Pretty much starring the entire Rat Pack. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the best of the group. because So there's Ocean's Eleven, which is the big one. That one was a huge hit. Um, but I think it's a little stodgy, a little stiff. I think the remake is much better. Um, but then we had, I think, Sergeant's 3, which cannot figure out if it's a serious drama or a comedy, and it never really works. It's about the Calvary. Uh, there's 4 for Texas, which has Dean and Frank, and I think a cameo by Sammy. But this one's kind of getting the whole group, for the most part, back together. And this is the one with like a big budget, lots of fun. It's taking the the classic Robin Hood story and setting it in uh, the you know the the, the Roaring Twenties. Prohibition era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we have the main three guys. We have um, uh, uh, Bing Crosby. Um, yes. Great Peter, addition. Peter Falk. Right. Uh, and I think Edward G. Robinson is in this one. I'm trying to. I think so. Yes. Ed, yeah. Edward uh, Pressman as well. 
Yeah, it's just it's a lot of fun. It's gorgeous to look at. I mean, this was this is one of those comedies that was shot super wide, which wasn't very common back then. But good lord, they filled the screen. Oh no, definitely. Oh god, yes. I mean, I loved like the sets that they had built to like you know rep, uh, replicate the scenery of Chicago, especially within that time. Yeah. And again, all the again all the clothing. I mean, heck, even the um the little casinos or the little gambling rooms that they had set up oh those are beautiful to look at yeah it's just god it's such a gorgeous movie and the songs are great my kind of town that's the, it came from this movie um there's one that i like a lot where sammy davis jr is kind of doing like a dance number around the casino yes and he is on yes. the crimeville bang bang <laughs> yes oh god uh, honestly if i were to pick a favorite of the rat pack or whoever was the most talented best voice that's arguable but most talented i would have to give it to sammy davis jr yeah all around so Frank has the best voice. I think uh, Dean is the best actor. I mean, he's just, but also like, he just has a very smooth, wonderful voice. The problem with Sammy and why he's not as well remembered is because he didn't get this. He, these songs back in the day were usually sold to Frank first and then to Dean and then Bing and whatever. And then Sammy was like on the next tier down. So he never really got the big hits. But good Lord, that man is an entertainer. And I think oh, I- Go ahead. Oh, no, I was, I was disagreeing. I was going to say absolutely. It's just kind of a shame that uh, that he he didn't get the select choice. And when he did do good songs, there were a lot of them were covers. So when people when people are like, yeah, I love that song, but they don't identify it as a, a Sammy Davis song. Something's got to give I identify as a Sammy Davis Jr. song. Well, Candyman, I think, is probably the most famous for our generation. No, I'll definitely have to look that one up then. You know, uh, the Candyman can... No? Oh, is that the one? Uh, that almost sounds like the one from uh, Willy Wonka. <laughs> uh, it might be. One. Hold on. Let me... Uh, <laughs> I, I think it might be from that. Yeah. But I will say, I mean, what? Sammy Davis, he could act. He definitely did. <laughs> oh, no. Especially when they were, like, trying to pretend that they were a church and they switched out the room. Yeah, yeah, instead yeah. Instead of make it... Instead of speak easy. <laughs> Just the way he's, like... He was trying to play off as that character, but as soon as he like kind of talking slang, he's like, "Who that? I mean, who's that?" Who's... <laughs> oh man! And again, yeah, he has he's again fantastic dancer. The way he lit up that room, honestly, he I, he had the best musical number in that entire film. Uh, what year did uh, Willy Wonka come out? Oh, it is, it is. Uh, it, it, the Candyman is from Willy Wonka. I've never seen Willy Wonka, so I, I didn't know. I know. You're I know. I've never seen it. Oh damn! I, I will. It will come up on the show because they did pick it up. I don't know for some reason. I just never thought of watching it. Maybe the Oompa Loompas freaked me out. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey man, at least you still got it, and you're gonna watch it soon. I'm not gonna watch that fucking remake though. Sweet Jesus, no. I mean, not the not the the one the Wonka. I'm talking about the one with um, Johnny Depp. Oh yeah, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, I, I didn't like it at all. It was. Ugh. Yeah, so this one's a lot of fun. It's a, it's really right in the pocket of you know high budget, high quality musicals. Um, you know, because of course musicals would start to collapse within the next few years. Um, what is our next film? Okay, our next one. This was a first for me, and I think it's oh god, it was definitely a close second of the bunch. Uh, my good neighbor, uh, good neighbor Sam, with Jack Lemmon. It made money at the time, but no one talks about this movie. I found this on VHS about. 15 years ago 
And I was like, this is really silly. It feels like it's stage-bound. I, I didn't look to see if it was based on a play. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly how I felt uh, regarding it, too. I was like, oh, this has to be a play. This is absolutely at his peak of talents. And what the story is, because you probably never heard of this movie, is so he has a neighbor who just moved in. And she's divorced. She, she is in the process of divorcing her husband, but then finds out that she's not going to get all this money because she has to stay married and through some sort of weird loophole because her uh, family is spying on her. They, she has to pretend to be married to the guy next door, Sam. So he has to balance out his job, which is now putting him in a new promotion his new fake wife and then his real home life and constantly uh, it, it's a screwball comedy it's it's, it's like the way noises <laughs> off. it's it's crazy in the way noises off is you know there's lots of lots of sight gags and, and and running around like lunatics oh absolutely god yes that it was just absolutely nuts and luckily that neighbor is his wife's best friend yeah because it could so it, i mean of course yeah and when the plan goes through she's gonna offer them like a million dollars and it's like well they're just doing it to help her out anyway. I mean, hey, if they're going to get a million dollars out of it, all right. <laughs> yeah, and and so yeah, he gets he gets promoted his job because they're looking for something. I think Edward Gene Robinson is in this one too. Shit. Yeah, he just wasn't happy with what uh, the advertising company was putting out, like to push his eggs. He he wanted clean cut, you know, you know, normal families. No, yeah, yeah. this is sell stuff. Yeah, which, yeah. Of course, in advertisement, it does. But he doesn't want that image. He's very prudish. And just kind of uptight about it. And then, of course, yeah, when they come across Jack Lemon, Jack Lemon's like, what? Normal people just want to buy your products. You know, whether or not it's, you know, a family or this or that. Just normal people. Yeah. And then that's how he ends up getting the job. And then, of course, he has to press, he has to put on this show for uh, Robinson uh, <laughs> to come off like he's that, you know, normal family man with you know, his pretend wife. His yeah, neighbor. and then one of his neighbors is his co-worker, and he's like, are you cheating on your wife with your neighbor? And they try to hide it, whatever. So it's always like trying to make sure you say the right thing at the right time, and people move it. It's, it's really wild. Um, oh, yeah, and absolutely. A, and then oh. there's a whole thing with his advertising. They don't pick actors. They pick them. Um, and so their billboards are all over town, but then they have to go and ruin those billboards because then they'll find out that he, uh, it's just the initial lose the money. And it's coming right down to the wire, and they're running around like lunatics in the middle of the night. The problem is, is he becomes so he becomes so entrenched in this because he's going to get like a hundred thousand dollars of it that he nearly destroys his own marriage. And it just it's really interesting, like how I wish that had played out a little bit better because she's like, I'm going to leave because you're so obsessed with this. And I really thought there'd be more repercussions. And all of a sudden, she's just like, oh, it's fine, fuck it. And I was like, oh, that's not how that should have ended. Yeah. No, she's like, yeah, I had nowhere else to go. And, yeah, uh, of course, yeah, luckily, that them being best friends and that they're just really trying to help each other out. Like, hey, you get that point, but it's like, damn, how long could they keep that up? Yeah. Especially when, uh, oh, gosh. I forget the actress's name. The neighbor or his wife? The neighbor. Uh, Romy Schneider, who is unbelievably adorable. Holy shit. Oh, absolutely. Romy Schneider, yeah. Her, the actual husband comes along seeking her out. Of course, he has no idea about the money uh, at first. And, of course, Romy Schneider doesn't believe it. And then he, he has to pretend to be married to Jack Lemon's wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh I forgot God. about that. And that crazy sculpture he's obsessed with, which is just a ridiculous nightmare. 
Oh, yeah. No, I mean, in the movie, you kind of establish that. You know, he's he works at the advertising firm, but he's he's bored with it. He's like, we go here every day. We're like sheep. And then, of course, when he looks at people in the car next to him, he sees them as sheep. It's <laughs> a imagination. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that was really funny. good. I liked it. Yeah, um, it's really interesting. Is I didn't realize who wrote this book. It's not a play; it's a book, and it's written by the guy who wrote. I kid you not, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Wildly oh, different films. <laughs> yeah, good God! I'm like, well, I mean, at least he's dependable in more than one genre. So, <laughs> may, the reason why this movie looks so good is because the director came from Disney. He was an animator. And then he oh, moved wow. on to doing live action. So he did uh, The Parent Trap and Pollyanna, then this, and then with uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, which I can't wait for you to see. Um, and then just kind of faded away after that. Went back to TV and then just, eh. Yeah, no, it's a damn shame because I felt like this would be definitely a good classic. And the way it has those like cartoonish elements makes a whole lot more sense. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the way the guy that did... Um, Frank Tashlin, who worked with Jerry Lewis so much, uh, he brought such a strong visual style to his movies as well that were, were cartoon like looking. Oh, especially with the oh god, the nightmare sequence where he's wearing uh, where Jack Lemmon's wearing ex husband's pajamas, and then you know she she ends up screaming in the middle of the night because he tries to kiss her. Oh yeah yeah yeah. And then like not only the neighborhood but his boss, like um, the big farm owner. You know, <laughs> calling him a deviant and this and that. Yeah. But it's just showing up to see him get arrested. Well, and it's funny oh is God. is that this is another movie that's really long, like surprisingly long considering. Oh, yeah, no. Again, back then, I didn't ever expect movies to be that long. But as you mentioned, like having to compete with TV and whatnot kind of makes more sense. Yeah. But yeah, no, this is a whole heart. This is a wholeheartedly enjoyable film from beginning to end. And again, the visuals, the cinematography, especially with the wide shots of, you know, San Francisco back in the day. Absolutely love looking at it. Um, so that is it for 1964, and that is it for the end of the year, because Jacob is going to be drowning in work for a while. Oh, yeah, but hey, you know, I'll be making extra money, so that helps out a lot. <laughs> All right, everybody. <laughs> we will. God, I'll be tired. <laughs> What's that? I said, my God, I'll be tired. <laughs> So usually uh, end of December, January, whatever, he's ready. We'll be back. We'll be kicking ass with 1965. So thank you, everybody, and have a good one. Namaste and good luck, everybody. Be excellent to each other. And stay groovy, man. Get a martini. Hey, pally.